very, very few people alive today have any understanding of what healthy ecosystems look like because all of us have grown up in damaged ecosystems. We do not understand the abundance that is possible. Western culture is psychosocially extremely underdeveloped. We believe we are separate, which is really kind of like the developmental stage of a two-year-old. This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. My guest today is Dave Jackie, who has been a longtime student and practitioner of ecological culture design since the 1970s, actually. He does a lot of this work through his firm, Dynamics Ecological Design. Since writing the now-classic two-volume tome, Edible Forest Gardens, with his colleague Eric Tonsmeyer, He's come to believe that we have to spend at least as much time designing our human social structures as our ecological landscapes. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Good to be with you. Why don't we start by you explaining a little bit about what ecological design is? The word ecology literally from Greek means study of the household. So I think of ecology as a, an awareness practice and Ecological design is where we take that understanding we gain by looking at the household of the whole planet or the household of the person I'm designing for or whatever unit of design I'm designing. I, I, I try to understand how that ecosystem operates, including the humans as part of that ecosystem, and then to design systems that will improve the health and productivity of that ecosystem and adapt that ecosystem to the people and the people to the ecosystem. So in other words, instead of looking at it as the planet or the environment as something separate from us, it's something we, we're immersed in and are part of the whole shebang. Yeah, absolutely. The whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. If you understand physics or, or ecology, any, any system properly, you will understand there is no separation between pretty much anything. <laughs> that, that everything is t tied up together. And the Buddha, the Buddha understood that a lot of different fields point us that direction. And ecological design that doesn't take account of humans and how to adapt humans to, to our context is pretty much a bogus approach. This implies quite obviously then that culture and what you've called the inner landscape are really critical aspects of dealing with what seems to be out there. <laughs> what seems to be out there is, is a critical phrasing. Yeah, I mean, what's out there is in here. What As above, so below. I mean, these, these pieces all fit together. The principles of how ecosystems operate are operative also in our inner landscapes. They should be operative. They are operative in human social constructs also. And we ignore this reality at our peril and Look at what's going on on the planet. Now that geologists have nearly declared this the so-called Anthropocene era, in which humankind is affecting the geological and biological structures at a profound systemic level, what better time to maybe self-reflect on yeah. our inner selves and our culture? We, we as a species are a geological force of nature. So it reminds me of a quote that you once said in one of your talks from a Stuart Hill who said, the human species is psychosocially highly underdeveloped, and paradoxically, that's our greatest reason for hope. Why don't you explain that? If the human species were psychosocially as developed as we could be genetically, and we faced all these perils, we'd be screwed. But the fact that we have so much room to grow psychosocially 
is our greatest reason for hope. But we are highly underdeveloped as a species. I shouldn't speak for the whole species. Western culture is psychosocially extremely underdeveloped. We believe we are separate, which is really kind of like the developmental stage of a two-year-old. People talk about the terrible twos, and that's the stage where kids begin to realize, oh, I'm separate from my parents. I can say no. I have my own needs, my own agenda, my own wants, my own boundaries, and they're pushing limits trying to understand what those boundaries are, and that's what the terrible twos are about. And that's that's an, an enactment of separation. If human beings are in an appropriate culture and we're, we're raised well, we understand our independence and we act that out. And then at a certain point, we start out dependent. Then we become independent. And then if we are growing appropriately into our adulthood, we become interdependent. Maturity is about that, is how to, how to live interdependently with our friends, our neighbors, our lovers, our family, and all the creatures around us. So we're kind of stuck at this two- to five-year-old stage of development where we believe we're separate and we can do whatever we want and damn the consequences on anyone else. Paradoxically, this era, say the past 400, 500 years, is celebrated as the enlightenment, the heights of, of human development, that this is what millennia have led to, and this we are as developed as we possibly could be. We are civilization. <laughs> Yes, that is true, and I'm laughing at that, so I don't know, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> uh, that's a serious question, but a related question is, do we have the capacity to culturally innovate, uh, to catch up with, in the psychosocial? Oh, we certainly have the capacity. The question is, do we have the time? You know, that's, that's really the question. Indigenous cultures have a lot to teach us about understanding our interdependence and how to do that, how to live that way. Certainly, that needs to be adapted to the current context of 7.8 billion people on the planet and growing rapidly. And we basically have to learn how to regenerate the health of the planet while we learn how to regenerate healthy human connection and safety. And While weaning ourselves off of a very deeply embedded system of growth equated with progress. Well, yes, and behind that is the, and kind of preceding that, actually, is, is the, the medieval culture of separating people from their, the land that sustains them, which gets us to the commons. Very, very few people alive today have any understanding of what healthy ecosystems look like because all of us have grown up in damaged ecosystems. We do not understand the abundance that is possible. We have to envision and cre recreate that. And the only way to do that is for us to change our whole culture, not just our land use practices. This is a perfect segue to have this larger discussion about the commons. Why, as an ecological designer, do you see the commons as being relevant to this discussion, and how might that play out? Let me take you on a, on, on a winding path to get to the answer to that question. I've talked about being an ecological culture designer. Let me just talk briefly about what, what, uh, how I envision culture, or one model that I use to describe what culture is as an, as an adaptive mechanism for our species. You imagine a f blank piece of paper, that's the world of nature, and you draw one circle, one large circle in the middle of that piece of paper, that's the world of culture inside that circle. So first of all, culture is part of nature, not the other way around. Nature evolved to develop culture, human culture, as part of the evolutionary process. And then within that circle of culture, I envision four primary 
components. If you if you draw a little circle in the in the inside of the big circle and then divide the space between the two circles, the donut, um, into three equal parts, the first part of culture is resources. That is any natural object that we have turned into a useful product for our for our use. So you could have a tree out in nature, and that tree has its own intrinsic value, its own intrinsic worth, its own intrinsic needs and goals and desires and characteristics. And that tree is a very multifaceted being. When we look at that tree and we cut it down and we say, okay, we're going to make lumber out of it, we've reduced it from what it was in nature and we've simplified it. And there's a boundary there that healthy cultures acknowledge and they ask and they thank when they pull something across that boundary. And so that's the first point. There is a boundary there that we generally don't acknowledge in this culture. It's, if it's there, it's free for the taking. Because everything's a thing. Yes, exactly, yes. We are, we are objectifying. That's actually the first piece where we go wrong because that's where we impose separation on, on the world. So we, we, we make this tree a resource and then we use it. And in order to use that resource, we need to have tools. So technology is the second third of that donut. You know, all the tools that we use from the shirt that I'm wearing, the hat on my head, the glasses that I use when I'm reading, the, the computers, the, the power plants, the, the roads, you know, all of those things are tools, they're technologies. And there's a double-headed arrow between resources and technology. The kind of tools we have will influence the resources that we perceive in the environment. The kind of resources that we have and want to use will influence the tools we develop. You can't separate the tools from the resources. They evolve together. So you wouldn't even say they're value-neutral tools. I, well, I definitely would not say that, that there, that there are value-neutral. I mean, many people say that, you know, a hammer is a hammer. It changes your perception. If you only have a hammer, all you see is nails. As the cliche goes, yeah. yes. Yes, exactly. You know, environmentalism has focused on resources and technologies, resources, technologies, resources, technologies. If you understand the, the image that I'm creating with this circle with the donut and the, cent the circle in the center, there's, there's only two, two pieces of that, of that pie that I've described to you, and there's two other pieces that are important here, so we're dealing with half the donut, but actually because of the relationships between these four pieces of culture, we're actually dealing with less than half. If we're only dealing with technology and resources, we're, we're, we're dealing with less than half of the pie of culture here. That third piece of the, of the donut on the outside is, is social and economic structures. And so if you have a tool, say a didgeridoo, from native Australia, they have a certain culture around that tool or a flint knife. There's, there's a certain culture around that flint knife. There's a social structure and an economic structure. You know, not all tribes had access to flint to make knives with. And so they had the trade to get it. There's very few people in the world, in Western culture at least, that know how to make a flint knife, how to, how to nap flint. You have to learn that from somebody. And so there's a, there's a social structure that goes with that. So the social and economic structures, which, which in permaculture people call invisible structures, and if, if you know what you're looking at, they're not invisible at all. So I don't call them invisible structures because then they'll stay invisible if we call them that. Those social and economic structures are essential, and they're also double-headed arrows between the technology and the social and economic structures and the resources in the social and economic structures because they evolve together. The, the technology of a nuclear power station requires a highly specialized, capital-intensive, exploitive kind of, of social and economic structure. 
You have to have graduate degrees to, in engineering to design and build those things. Whereas to nap a flint knife, you don't need that. You need a different social structure. There's implicit in in any technology, in any resource, is a social and economic structure. And that's why the whole idea of appropriate technology was invented in the 1970s, because they were trying to, people were trying to take account of that. That phrase is not very popular now, but it's an important understanding that we need to have. Now, I've spent many years involved in permaculture-type activities or the permaculture movement directly, and I've observed a lot of permaculture systems and been involved in designing systems, and I've designed social and economic structures, technology, and resources pretty well, and I've still had the systems fail. So what do, what do you attribute that to? Very often, the proximal cause of failure is in the social and economic structures, that, that there's poor design or no design of the social economic structures. And so if you have a top-down, hierarchical, capitalistic kind of social and economic structures and you're trying to have a regenerative landscape, those two are not going to work well together. You'd say much of the current uh, ambitions for reform revolve precisely around Green New Deal, renewables, and so forth, while maintaining growth, mind you. Yeah. So you're suggesting that's really a doomed uh, enterprise. If, they, if it's framed that way, yes, absolutely. But, you know, we also need lily pads to jump to to get to across the pond. So might be a good first step. The Green New Deal might be a great first step. As I said, the proximal cause of failure is usually in the social and economic structures, but the essential cause of failure is in the inner landscape. Oh, and so this is the fourth element. That's the fourth. That's the center of that, the, the donut hole in the donut of culture. But you, you make this at the center for understandable reasons, yet at the same time you could say that that inner center is not autonomous but profoundly influenced by the other aspects of culture. The inner landscape, uh, you know, that donut hole is what makes the donut. It's the DNA of the cell. It's the operating instructions. You know, there's, a, there's another quote that I came across years ago from the Talmud that says, we see things not as they are, we see things as we are. So the way we have been taught to frame our context and our environment is going to affect what we even allow in as valid information from our eyes and ears and nose and throat and whatever else. And so it's amazing the misunderstandings we can have socially because of the different framings that people have. And I can, I just had this experience the other day with a friend where I said something to her and she interpreted it completely different than I meant it. And she was able to quote back exactly what I said to her, but her interpretation was not what I intended it to be. She heard exactly what I said, but she didn't understand what I meant at all. So what, what's the solution to this kind of misunderstanding? I mean, from my own experience in writing, I think that language is an important role in helping to reorient us. It's critical. I, you know, I would like to learn the Vulcan mind meld myself, but that's not available to me. So we, all we have is, is communication. You know, there's more than just language. There's more than just words to communicate with. And in fact, our bodies are communicating with each other you know, way more than our words are communicating in any context, unless you're online. <laughs> and that's why we get so much in so much trouble online, because we're not having that additional communication that helps give context and meaning to the words. Um, but anyway, the, the inner landscape is a very full, rich environment. It includes big kind of philosophical things like ethics and values and what we mean by beauty and ontology and epistemology and axiology are the, the philosophical terms. Axiology is the ethics and values and principles that we live by or we think we live by are, are espoused and are actual guiding ones that we live by. 
And then ontology is what is the nature of existence? What, what does it mean to be human? What, what is a human? What's our appropriate place in the universe and our role in, in, in our context? Epistemology is about what are, the, what are valid forms of knowing anything? Does your intu intuition a valid thing? Is a, is a feeling a valid form of information? Or is it only rational thought? There's a lot of questions there. So that's all kind of like super architecture, large-scale architectural pieces of the inner landscape. And then we have all of our basic unconscious emotional programming of like, do I deserve love? Do I deserve people's attention and witnessing? Do I have value? Am I worthy? I, the, all these, all these things, and, and and everything in between is all the, the realm of the inner landscape, and all of it has implications for our ability to manage an ecological landscape. If I've been traumatized so much that I'm a control freak, I'm trying to manage the external world in order to, in order to try and keep my inner landscape feeling safe. Then there's no way I'm going to manage an ecological e ecological landscape appropriately because I'll be trying to be in control, and it's not about control. Well, it sounds like this is like a huge indictment of modernity itself, or certainly at least modern capitalism, both of which try to assert human dominance and control. I mean, if that's the premise we're working from, how do we begin to start to shed some of that and open ourselves in very perilous times? to a more permeable membrane with the, <laughs> with, the, with the rest of the world. Yeah, well, uh, there's many ways. There's that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I'm speaking here of teachers, not in the human form necessarily, because problems that we've created for ourselves, those are our teachers. If you're feeling pain, let the pain be your teacher. If you're feeling grief or you're resisting feeling grief, let the grief be your teacher. They're profound teachers. One of the key separations of modern culture is the separation of mind from body, which does not exist. As my meditation teacher says, whatever happens to the mind happens to the body. Whatever happens to the body happens to the mind. They're not just connected. They're one freaking thing. And so to engage with our own direct experience from that paradigm and work our way into that paradigm by letting ourselves have our feelings and getting the support we need to do that. That is one of the first integrations we need. Our emotional system, the limbic system, evolved in mammals as a key physiological system that allows social interaction to occur and makes that possible. Reptiles don't have a limbic system. They have fight, flight, freeze, and the other four-letter word, uh, F word, uh, as responses to their environment, and that's about it. They don't have grief and, and shame and anger and all these things that help us have clear boundaries and so on. And to have a healthy social environment, we have to have a healthy internal landscape. So we're talking about a pretty broad-ranging reconstruction of the psyche as it plays out in all sorts of external structures, technologies. I would caution us against the word reconstruction, but regeneration, yes. It's not a mechanical thing. Good point. It is, it is a biological process an organic ecological process in our bodies and with our bodies and through our bodies and through the bodies of others and interaction between our bodies and other bodies. Generated rather than fabricated. Yes. Let's talk for a little minute about some of your explorations into the history of ecological design as it played in the commons. A lot of this 
cultural trauma that I'm talking about, the separation consciousness and the, and the in the enactment of that was, I mean, indigenous cultures have good, good ways of reestablishing connection and overcoming the sense of separation when it occurs, when a breach occurs socially um, and ecologically. Indigenous cultures, they seem to have been common in cultures primarily. And where I'm working on this book on coppicing, and I've been researching for this book um, some of the prehistory of this land use activity. So coppicing is when you have a tree or shrub, a woody plant, and you cut it to the ground and it resprouts. The material that regrows is called coppice, C-O-P-P-I-C-E. And there, there are ancient, ancient practices of managing woody plants for that material for that for that stump sprout or or branch sprout material because it grows quickly it grows straight it's easier to make into baskets or tool handles or any number of a whole wide range of cultural products were created using this material and created well before the invention of agriculture even the paleolithic in the stone age coppice management was occurring there's a study that i came across in researching the coppice book um, from denmark this guy figured out that there were all these archaeological excavations that were occurring on the coast of Denmark, and he started diving off the coast of these archaeological excavations and began finding these huge fish weirs, which are basically woven from coppiced hazel and chestnut, needing thousands, literally thousands of individual stakes of coppice and chestnut to make fish weirs up to a quarter of a kilometer long. So basically, these are kind of underground funnels to get the fish to come in. Yeah, they're they're basically a woven fence. They're so tight that that you can't stick your finger between the pieces of wood that are woven together with these verticals and the woven pieces that are going horizontally. And they're like so it's like a fence that's put in perpendicular to the coastline to force eels who are moving along the coast in the fall. They migrate down the rivers, then they go into the ocean, and they're moving along the coast, and the, the weirs force them into a basket, and they were able to harvest them and store them in the water for months and have access to fresh protein, even trade them inland using these fish weirs. And these fish weirs, some of them were found to be 8,000 years old. Agriculture only arrived in Denmark about a little over two, two to 3,000 years ago. So this is suggestive of uh, a rather extensive First of all, coppicing, but then socially, there must have been a lot of commenting going on to make it work. Let me correct my number there. It's not two to 3,000 years ago. I think it was two to 3,000 years after this, after this coppicing was documented that, that, that the agriculture arrived in Denmark. But anyway, in order to make one of these fish weirs, they needed, and they were making them every year. The, the vertical chestnut stakes were on the order of 10 years old. So they had to have 10 areas they were harvested each year and then cycle back through those 10 spaces to harvest coppice poles, chestnut poles, to make a fish weir every year. And they had to get, I think it was six to 7,000 hazel stakes an inch in diameter. And they would, they would need to manage 27 acres on an ongoing basis in order to build a one fish weir per year. And so this is a large scale endeavor it was, it was a communal thing to build the fish weir. Every, everybody had to be involved, most likely. And this was 8,000 years ago. They were managing 27 acres in a on a rotation of 10 years to get the material they needed. So they were coppicing, and they were managing in common together as a community this landscape in order to meet their communal needs. 
So presumably uh, there was plenty of fish pro- and eel protein to warrant. Oh, absolutely, kind of- yeah. Otherwise they wouldn't have been doing it all those years, right? We have no clue what the actual social agreements were to manage that landscape, but we have direct evidence that they were communally managing that landscape. Well, a lot of people then quickly segue to the English uh, commons of the medieval times as a way to get some insight into the social practices and right. the ethics yeah. by which there was both hierarchy but also sharing going on right. to assure not going over limits and to assure that everybody got a, a, a fair survivable right. share. Exactly. And that's you know not great records even from the medieval era. The further back you go, the less rec- recorded history there is. These were systems that were developed in the Paleolithic, and then the Roman invasion totally shifted things. But, but you know, there was still commoning going on for hundreds of years after the Romans left Britain. You know, Better and better information as we went on about how those were managed, but primarily that information comes from after the Norman invasion in 1066, I think it was. And so there was this overlay on top of the com- commoning system of of the the feudal you know liege lord kind of structure hierarchical structure where all the all the commoners were required to pay taxes and tribute to the to their lord and and in fact many of them were quote unquote owned by their lord the serfs were basically slaves and they were not even allowed off their so-called reservation without permission they couldn't marry whoever they wanted without getting permission from the from the lord so we have information about about how that was structured a little bit you know they had common agricultural land, they had common woodlands, and all this was to meet the individual needs of people within the, the society. You're right. The written records are pretty scant. In fact, it, one of the more celebrated uh, and oldest written records goes back to the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest, right. in which they started to, in writing, allocate legal rights to say commoners have these rights to these resources, the forest, the water, the fish, and so forth. You might say that's sort of the beginning of a more modern understanding of the commons, but obviously it's a very uh, complicated and distant cultural regime. Well, yeah. Well, and the Charter of the Forest, the Magna Carta survived up until a few years ago when Trump took power in the U.S., you know, habeas corpus has been getting eroded for a while. That's part of the Magna Carta. Those are about civil and legal rights. And that was partly because the serfs didn't have, you know, they could be thrown in jail and people wouldn't know that they were there. And habeas corpus made it so that the, 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 the law had to say, we, we do have, show me the bodies, what habeas, habeas corpus means. But they understood, and, you know, the, charter, the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest were had to be reaffirmed multiple times after various revolutions and, and battles and stuff. And the Magna Carta has held on longer, but the Charter of the Forest was abrogated much more quickly and forgotten. Most people don't even know about it, but that's what gave people the rights to the physical resources they needed to survive. And that was about structuring the commons and preventing the Lord from taking away too much land and making it their own. In Old English, the word for firewood, the right to firewood is called woodboat, B-O-T-E, was the, was the word for rights. And they had cart boat and wood boat. And there was a whole vocabulary yeah. from, you know, the right of panage to have your right. p- pigs yeah. eat acorns. or And all of these things are, are rights that were enumerated because they were practical needs that people needed to be fulfilled in that ecological context in order to survive. Now, if we flash forward, as we must, to, say, the past 200 years in which uh, an industrial market culture has taken such hold and it has 
considered itself quite separate and distinct from so-called nature. It, it just gives you an idea of how far we're going to have to circle back to recover some of these sensibilities and understandings and indeed basic relationships right. with, with ecosystems. It's important to understand, too, that fossil fuels allowed us to act as if we were separate from the local landscape. If we don't need firewood anymore, then we don't need common rights to, to firewood anymore. And so it made it easier to destroy the commons because people didn't need them to survive and they could monetize the transactions that gave them heat in the wintertime or cooking fuel. Assuming you could become part of that money economy. Well, right. But that was the, the, the reason that his commons were destroyed was to create landless peasantry that were forced to sell their labor because that's all they had. I know a number of legal scholars and others are trying to sort of deconstruct the legal assumptions we bring to the table now yeah. and recover, for example, ideas like inalienability, that certain things are not for sale, and the idea of uh, local ecosystems as the baseline from which we work as opposed to some expendable uh, discretionary thing. Well, right. I mean, the primitive accumulation of is, is where alienation first occurred. And, you know, the Caliban and the Witch, I forget the name of the author of that book. Sylvia Federici. Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great book. You know, she's talking in that book about how women were treated, they were alienated first from their own rights and, and, and from the commons because they were the, they were the most important users of the commons because they kept the families going. The first way that capital was formed was by taking away common rights from women and taking away women's rights to their own bodies and their own decision-making, it's fundamental to capitalism that that be done. And it's a fascinating, maybe not a side note, but note that that's why witch hunts were often conducted from, yes. for women who could persisted in using commons. They were vilified. Exactly. The witches were empowered healers who were harvesting wild medicines and stuff, and, and they were the menfolk felt threatened by that, dare I say. Well, we're, we've sketched out how some of the cultural issues play out in the commons and ecological design. I guess where I'd like to move this conversation is how ecological design and commons, commons being a, a vehicle for culture, yeah. can begin to start to reintegrate. Mm. And I, this is maybe an un, unanswerable larger question, <laughs> but it's precisely why you and I are both interested in ecological design and yeah. commons as something that have to communicate more with each other. Well, and it's it, it's more of a question to live into than it is to answer, right? And and that it will be lived into and answered differently in different time spaces. One of the separations that we have to get over is that time and space are one thing. I mean, physicists know this now that t it's time space, it's one word or space time. And so every ecological context is going to have different adaptive responses. The, the, the forest gardening book that I, that I wrote with Eric Tonsmeyer, you know, one of the things that I, I understood in putting that book together that I came to understand in my research for that book is that there is a social structure inherent in how ecosystems operate and that that has a lot to teach us about who we are and how we might organize ourselves. So in some ways, our first challenge is to open ourselves to be available to understanding these issues. Right. And allow ourselves to be transformed. It's exactly, to, to humble ourselves. The forest garden piece is interesting because I've learned a lot about social structure by attempting to design ecosystems that function in certain ways in the forest garden, where I have crop trees that I'm trying to support 
and make sure they have all the nutrients they have that they need, you know, that, and that the, the ecosystem is giving those nutrients to the tree itself rather than me having to import buy and import nutrients. How do we design polycultures of plants that have the right relationships between them that that crop tree is supported and the pollinators are supported and the beneficial insects are support, supported and there's not weeds that are problematic there. And so, you know, we start trying to figure out what plant species to put together so that all those different functions are met by the ecosystem itself so that I don't have as much work to do. Is this going to be a trial and error process or do we have some avenues that are promising? Both. <laughs> there's a lot of trial and error because we still know nothing, essentially. I think there's conceptual frameworks that I've come to understand better since my books came out. I'm, I, I articulate them better in, in my teaching than I do, do in my book. But, you know, the idea of guilds and polycultures and Talk about guilds and polyculture. Well, a, a polyculture, you know, there's there's monoculture in agriculture. That's where you have a thousand acres of corn and you're trying to grow the crop in such a way there's no other plant species there. That's a monoculture. Polyculture is simply more than one species growing in the same patch of ground. It doesn't mean it's a good polyculture or a bad polyculture or a mediocre polyculture. It's just a polyculture. But I'm trying to design effective polycultures. So polyculture is about who's growing together in the same space. So when we start talking about effective polycultures, we start talking about the, the relationships between the species that are there. And that's where we start getting into guilds. And guilds are? Well, there's different kinds of guilds, but they are, they are collections of species that have certain kinds of relationships. There's three kinds of guilds that I've identified so far. Uh, the first is what I call a community function guild. It's like the plumbers, you know, or you've got the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Those are three different community functions that need to be performed to have a village. You also need a priest and a and a baker and a, you know, a, a firefighter or whatever, right? So do these self-organize the, through ecosystems where they the, basically the different plant species self-select to come together and be, sy time, be synergistic? Over evolutionary time, nature abhors a vacuum, they say. Somehow in the lottery of plant distribution over, over eons, North America came up with far fewer nitrogen-fixing species that take nitrogen out of the air and put it into the soil than Eurasia did. So there's gaps in the different kinds of species that fill that role that are native to the U.S. Uh, or to North America or even all of the Western Hemisphere compared to Eurasia. And so, you know, I end up drawing on species from Eurasia in order to fill that niche sometimes because there aren't that many diverse species to use here. So there is, over evolutionary time, a tendency for those different community functions to get filled by species, but sometimes you have to pull in things from outside the, the area. So the, in a plant community, the, the four community function guilds that I typically am designing in my forest garden are crop plants. That's from fruits to nuts to roots to greens to edible flowers or whatever. Nutrient accumulators or soil improving plants. And then I've got the ground covers that help manage weeds. And then I've got the plants that attract beneficial insects. Those are the four primary community function guilds that I'm encouraging people to start with to get the baseline of a functioning ecosystem together. And we select species to fill those roles and more than one species typically to fill each role in, in any given polyculture if, if that works in the context. And how does the human culture relate to what might emerge from those guilds? There are different functions that I perform. I, I, as one individual, 
Phil, and the same is true of plants or an any other animal, is that we all of us are in more than one community function guild. I'm a father. I'm a designer. I'm a consumer. I'm a gardener. You know, I have all these different functions. I'm multifunctional. I'm not a single-use item. So human culture can conceivably evolve in any number of ways to fill gaps in the ecosystem. Absolutely. And this is where understanding the, just the idea of the one kind of guild, the community function guild, can help us to understand ourselves better and then say, okay, in order to have a functioning social structure, we need these community functions to be performed. That's a community niche that needs to be filled. Which is a, a long, a far cry from social engineering or something that is pre-planned. This is something that has to evolve and be negotiated on the fly. So exactly. And, you know, different individuals are going to have different capacities uh, and skills and talents that can either fill or not fill the different community niches. But conversely, this is precisely why intact ecosystems and cultures are so hardy, because they're so deeply embedded with each other and yes. an organic whole. Exactly. And an, another way they do that, I mean, you've got community niches. In order to have a viable community, you have to have a certain minimum set of community niches filled so a certain set of community function guilds have to be present but then you also need to have mutual support guilds and resource partitioning guilds so a mutual support guild is where the needs of one element are met by the inherent products of another so if i have a pear tree that needs calcium i have a calcium accumulating plant that's taking calcium out of the subsoil and bringing it up to the surface where this pear tree's roots are that's mutual support, right? Or it's at least the beginning of mutual support. It's one, it's, it's, it's one side of the reciprocity that needs to occur. And it, you need to design that in relationship so that the needs of the calcium accumulator are also getting met by other elements in that system, but it doesn't have to be directly the, the, the pear tree. Now, it, it strikes me that we're not just, uh, we moderns or people like you are not just making this up in the sense that there have been entire cultures that have discovered this and, quote, engineered it. You know, the Amazon, for example, had a lot of uh, social engineering going, not social co-evolution going on. Right. Negotiation is a valid term in that. You know, people have to be able to be heard about here's an issue that I see, and then the people have to say, okay, well, how are we going to meet that need together? And that's a key practice in commoning is to have those kinds of discussions and negotiations about what are your needs and what are, what are my needs and how do we split this up? The, the Resource Partitioning Guild is actually particularly important here because the Resource Partitioning Guild is about reducing competition. Competition ecologically can only occur when two or more individuals need the same resource at the same time and the same place, and the resource is scarce. If there's resources and scarce, there's no competition. But in order to avoid competition, people make people, an agreement. People, people partition the resource. And in the medieval commons where they had agricultural land, they had village would have access to certain a certain limited amount of farmland for growing their vegetables and their grains. And they would divide that farmland up. Some of it was good farmland, some of it was poorer farmland. And each family would get some of the good and some of the bad land, and they would all share the good land and the bad land, and they'd deal with that. And that was a way of partitioning so that one, one family didn't monopolize all the good farmland and they were better off than everybody else. That's a way of partitioning resources and avoiding competition. So there's a lot to be learned from ecosystems themselves, but also from some indigenous peoples and some of these older societies that have essentially been there, done that. Yes, exactly. And, you know, we need to understand the concepts that I'm talking about from ecosystems in terms of guilds and polycultures 
so we can understand the, the social structures that did exist in the past and how, oh, that was a resource partition guild like I just talked about. Well, then how do we take that idea and apply it in a specific context with a specific resource now? How much recognition do you think there is of this right now, of the need to move into this territory? Obviously, it's not widely known or even attractive to many conventional people. Do you see some signs of progress or openings? Big sigh. Um, on the kind of dark side of the ledger, I think the forces that are exploiting and doing a lot of damage right now, they understand very well what they're doing socially and how, how to exploit the ignorance of the masses around these issues. Masses who've been acculturated into something quite different. Right, exactly. In the circles I am connected to or run in, there's certainly far better understanding of the need for applying ecological principles to the design of social and economic structures more than there was 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, certainly. But I don't think people have much of a clue about how to go about doing that. And partly because, you know, you talked about language earlier. Most people in permaculture conflate the word polyculture with the word guild. And because they don't understand that a polyculture is not necessarily a guild, and a guild is not necessarily a polyculture, their framing of those two words makes it harder for them to understand the ecosystems and thereby to design functioning ecosystems, in my opinion. It sounds like this level of detail, or you might say sophistication, is it at play in the people involved with the circular economy or some of these other attempts to make ecological stewardship more benign? I don't know. I have a very specific terminology that I use growing out of the science of ecology, adapted by me and, and adapted by my understanding that I've developed by designing forest gardens for the last 20 years. But I'm often able, when I'm talking to people in, from different corners, to understand, if I can understand their language and what they're actually doing, I can see, oh, that's a resource petitioning guild. That's this kind of dynamic that they're creating and understand it and help maybe improve it or at least jive with it, you know, and, and work with it. But there's a lot of heady social stuff that comes from the left that doesn't feel very grounded to me and doesn't feel based in anything but some philosophical idea that's not connected to bodies somehow that I feel very frustrated by and that I think some people are, their thinking is blockaded by that. To the extent that we're talking about a reconnection of humans, human bodies, ecosystems in a rather elemental way, this is not going to be solved through better messaging or uh, PR. <laughs> not only by that, no. But when I design educational events, I'm not teaching to people's heads. I'm teaching to their bodies 95% and to their heads 5%. The 5% leavens the loaf. It's the carbon dioxide that gives it light and air and makes it digestible. But I really, it's, it's people's bodies that need to understand this because then it lives there and it comes out of them later on. And it's a far better way of educating people than, than teaching to people's heads all the time. Well, it strikes me that that is almost the frontier is finding a way to speak simultaneously to the inner landscape, to the actual biophysical landscape, yeah. and to the socio-political structures, all of which need to be rethought and regenerated. And reconnected to. And reconnected to. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this time with me, and uh, best of wishes in your ongoing project. Thank you. You too. I'm glad to be here, and we barely scratched the surface. Thank you.